for staying here in with us, uh, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're continuing in our series um, of Daniel called Unshakable. Uh, we're in chapter 5 this morning. Um, so last week, uh, Sheehan wrapped up chapter 4 where we looked at Nebuchadnezzar. And this, this morning, we're going to look at uh, chapter five, 5. And if you've missed any of the uh, previous series, I've heard from multiple people about how helpful this series has been and how timely. And so if you've missed any of it... Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's all on our website. So let's uh, begin by reading Daniel chapter 5. We're actually looking at the whole chapter. We're not going to talk about all of the chapter, but we're at least going to read it. So, it's, uh, so bear with me as we kind of make our way through that passage. So chapter 5, we read, uh, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink with them from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king their interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams Explain riddles and solve puzzles were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high 
God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, and your wives, and your concubines have drink, drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and his writing was inscribed, and this writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to the end, brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So as you kind of um, look at this passage and kind of walk through the story in chapter 5, you're probably wondering, who is Belshazzar? We've been kind of reading about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and suddenly the, the, uh, the king's changed. So what's going on here? So a little bit of kind of uh, context to kind of orient us to where we are in chapter 5. So um, even though chapter 5 comes immediately after chapter 4, as it typically does, chapter, uh, the events in chapter 5 um, actually take, about, take place about 20 or so years after chapter 4. Uh, multiple kings have actually come and gone after Nebuchadnezzar. Um, scholars say Nebuchadnezzar probably passed at the end of chapter 4. Some time has passed, and now we are in chapter 5 with a new king um, um, that's, that's ruling uh, Babylon. And Daniel, about this time, is probably in his 70s or early 80s, uh, from our best estimates, um, and he's still serving, uh, serving in the kingdom. And... Um, Belshazzar uh, was actually a co-regent of, the, of, uh, of Babylon. His dad actually was the true king. His dad's name was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus um, abandoned his uh, kingship and decided he was going to do something else and put uh, Belshazzar in charge of Babylon. And it's essentially that's why we read about Belshazzar as being co-regent and co-ruler uh, at this time. And politically, things have changed too. Uh, if you look around what's happening, uh, I think uh, Shannon mentioned a little bit about what Babylon looked like. It was a massively fortified city. The walls were wide enough for uh, multiple chariots to go uh, to ride on it. 
And so, uh, but politically, uh, the Medes and the Persians were outside the gates of Babylon waiting to uh, attack them. But the people of Babylon didn't really care because they were like, our walls uh, cannot be breached, and hence, we're just going to party. Um, and so that's kind of where we pick up the story here. Um, the, so as we look at the, what's happening, uh, some scholars say that the people of Babylon themselves are not happy with how Belshazzar and the prior kings after Nebuchadnezzar has ruled. So they're probably uh, disgruntled too. But as we kind of pick up the story there, one of the interesting stories, if you look at the narrative of how Daniel's laid out, even uh, you'll notice that chapter 4 and chapter 5 are actually parallel accounts of two different people but similar stories. In chapter 4, you'll notice um, that it's about Nebuchadnezzar, and chapter 5 is about Belshazzar, but it's both... Both of those stories are about how people respond to pride when they're humbled. Essentially, that's kind of what uh, these two stories tell us. So if you look at these chapter 4, look at, let's look at uh, how chapter 4 begins. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So Nebuchadnezzar essentially praises God here and gives him glory. And he ends chapter 4, verse 37, says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And so we look at, as we kind of walk through chapter 4 over the last previous two weeks, we notice that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream, Daniel interprets it, and asks Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself, he decides not to, and God judges him, and, uh, um, and he becomes a beast, and, and then he repents, God restores him and blesses him abundantly, and that's essentially the, the kind of lay of the land for chapter 4, but chapter 5 has a similar uh, kind of flow. If you look at chapter 5, how does chapter 5 start? It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And verse 2 talks about how he brought the vessels from the Jewish temple and drank wine in them, which he knew he was not supposed to do. And it doesn't end well for him. How does it, how does it end in chapter 5 and verse 30? It says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Both kings died, but in very different ways, right? One, for the most part, died peacefully, which was Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar had a much different ending. Um, if, if chapter 5 isn't the height of irony between chapter 1 and chapter, uh, sorry, chapter, verse 1 and verse 30, going from the king at the highest glory to being dead in, in, a ma- in one day, uh, I'm not sure what it is, but that is probably what the writer is trying to communicate to us. So what happened to Belshazzar that didn't happen to Nebuchadnezzar? What is the writer trying to teach us from these two stories that sit next to each other but have different responses by two different people when they are, when they are asked to humble themselves? Well, pride happened in a nutshell. So let's look at that. Kind of the first, brings me to the first point, and I uh, apologize, I don't have it on, this, um, on the screen, but I'll repeat it for those that are taking notes. The first point here is to look for the warning signs of pride. Look for the warning signs of pride. Before I kind of look at that, I, I, I do have to make a confession. 
Uh, I, uh, I'm not a great driver, probably a bad driver, uh, as my wife says. Um, what, uh, you know, some of you know, I moved from New York City, so if you actually drive in New York City, you know, like the speed limit doesn't go above 35. It's like 25 in most places, 5 in a lot of places, in local roads, and like 35 is like the fastest you can go. So you combine, and probably because New Yorkers tend to be very impatient, right? So you combine the New York impatience in me to the Texas speed limits, and it's a bad recipe. So... Um, not a good example to follow, but it's a good story, and it uh, helps make the, illustrate my point, so bear with me here. Uh, so needless to say, I've gotten pulled over uh, multiple times, uh, and so re uh, before I had kids, okay, before, before, uh, before I had kids. Um, I got pulled over this one time because I barely missed the red light, okay? I, I, like, I, I think I passed it on time, but got pulled over. Uh, and the officer pulls up next to me in his car. Uh, he didn't even get out of his car. He pulled over, he rolled his window down, I rolled my window down, and he says, boss, what color was that light? So at this point I'm thinking, is he asking me a rhetorical question or is he asking because he didn't know what, like, what color the light was? <laughs> so my, uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I joke about this story all the time. Um, she reminds me, boss, what color was that light? Uh, every time I tried, I'm tempted to skip, uh, jump a light. But um, I... I didn't even bother. I said, I, I just apologized because I'm not sure what he was looking for. And he's like, he asked me to be careful and let me go. Right? Um, so pride, unfortunately, is not that forgiving. Right? Uh, and we, when we see pride in our lives, we have to be clear-eyed and make sure that we, we don't ignore it like I did. I ignored the red light that day. It's very important that we pay attention to it when it shows up in our lives and find every way to root it out of our lives. You see, you see in the story that Belshazzar was not that keen about it, about doing that. Now let's look at verses 2, and verses two through 4 uh, to see what he's up to. Uh, he gathers this uh, party, um, and he, um, he's essentially dr drunk with wine. He uh, asks all his uh, uh, court uh, people in, in his court to gather and drink wine and party with him. And then it, he takes it a step further. He asks, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he asks his men to gather the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and be brought so that the people that were with him could drink from them. And they brought the vessels that had been taken out of the temple. And these vessels that were reserved for the Jewish God, the one true God, the king drank wine from them, praising his false gods, the gods of gold, the silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Right about this time, historically, uh, is when it was prophesied that the Israelites would return to their land. But Belshazzar looked around, and the Jews were still his captives. And he was like, well, their God failed, so I'm going to drink to my gods. And he decides to uh, defile the precious vessels that were reserved to be only used in the temple. His act of mocking God was an affront to God's honor and God's uh, divinity. I think the, um, there's so much to read. If you have a reference Bible and you look at this verse, especially about the vessels, you'll notice that all of the, um, some of the other minor prophets talk about these vessels, and there's so much biblical context around it. I won't have time to look at all of it. But just know that these vessels were reserved to only serve Yahweh and to be used only in the temple. And when and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, excuse me, Belshazzar knew this. 
but he decides to ignore it and he uh, decides to desecrate these vessels. One of the things that stands out as we look at how God responds to this disobedience and disrespect uh, and prideful uh, arrogance by Belshazzar is how God uh, responds to it's how God responds to it. Look at Dan- what Daniel says. In Daniel, uh, in, in chapter 5, if you look at verses 22 and 23, but before we read that, the preceding verses, Daniel goes on to tell Belshazzar about uh, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. But I do have to make a point that I forgot to mention. If you look at through the passage, you'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar is actually referred to as Belshazzar's father, Right? And the reason for that is, and I just told you, Nabonidus was actually Belshazzar's father. Is that's because, in, in from what I understand, in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew, there is actually no word for grandfather or grandson. So every predecessor is referred to as father, and so essentially, you know, that's why we're called children of Abraham. You know, why do we call that? Because essentially, every predecessor that comes before uh, him was called a father, and essentially, that's what is going on here. Belshazzar was probably the grandson, or maybe a little bit. Uh, younger than, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, but here he's being referred to as um, Nebuchadnezzar's son. And throughout the passage, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's son about seven times. Right? And not a coincidence that it is seven. It is, the writer is informing us that Belshazzar knew better. Right? Even, and D- Daniel refers to that. If you look at verse 22, it says, And you his son, Belshazzar, referring to him as Nebuchadnezzar's son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So you see here that Belshazzar knew what was expected of him. He had seen the track record of people standing affront to God when he, they're convicted of their pride. He knew that people that stood up against God in their pride didn't have a good track record. He would have had firsthand knowledge of that. He would have had multiple opportunities to not repeat the mistakes of his predecessors. But he refused to do that. And so if you feel like God was unfair to Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar had a chance to repent and be restored, know that Belshazzar had multiple more opportunities. He saw the examples of his predecessors. Daniel refers to him that he would have known, uh, Belshazzar would have known. So God is judging Belshazzar not for what he didn't know, but for what he knew. He may not have understood what the writing on the wall said, but he knew what he was expected to do when confronted about his pride. And I think that should be a warning for all of us, brothers and sisters, uh, because oftentimes pride doesn't register as sin in our own dashboards, right? in our own conscience. It's because it's oftentimes subtle and deceiving. It can disguise itself in multiple ways, maybe as greed or as anger or as uh, workaholism or working too hard or addiction or gluttony. It appears in, it shows up in multiple ways but no matter how it shows up, it's dangerous for us as Christians, just like it was for Belshazzar. I think we need to pay attention for any signs of it in our lives and address it. So last week, Shannon talked about the desensitizing effects of sin, how when every convic- 
conviction can seem less and less piercing the more we ignore it. And so uh, I want to just press in, in on that point a little bit more this morning uh, as we look at what are some of the warning systems that God has given us as believers to tell us, hey, there's something going on here with pride. What are some of those warning systems? So there's three that I want to talk about. Though there may be, there's, there's multiple, but just three this morning that I want to emphasize. And first is Christian community, right? We can all read about Belshazzar in the first two verses and be like, not a good move, dude. Not a good move, right? Um, and oftentimes it's true for us as believers. People around us can see the pride in our life much faster than we can detect it in our own lives. Isn't that true? Right? They can see, it's like, I don't, that's prideful or that's pride. And so one of the gifts that God has given us or a warning system that God's given us is the people around us, the Christian community that God has given us. Because people around us that are believers can often detect pride in us faster than we can ourselves. And so um, if you avoid being present with other believers or fellowshipping with other believers, you leave yourself vulnerable. And you leave yourself handicapped because you don't have that warning system that God has given us as believers to detect pride. The other thing here with Christian community is oftentimes we can fall into the tendency of picking people that we prefer to be with, right? We can often pick only people that we, uh, we like to associate with. They look like us, they're in our uh, circles, and we enjoy being with them, right? But let's be honest, like not everybody is the same, right? Uh, some people, I know for me, drain me, other people energize me. I prefer to spend less time with people that drain me than people that energize me. But it's important as believers that we don't, uh, we don't exclusively work within our preferences. Like when God brings people into our life to love and serve, God says, love your neighbor. Whether you prefer them or not, love and serve them. I think it's important as believers that we, we do that, that we learn to humble ourselves and serve and love the people that God has brought into our lives. Because a lot of times those people, our hesitancy to serve and love them is a pride-detecting system or pride a pride-detecting warning system in our own lives. The second warning system that God has given us is the Word of God, right? Whether it's sitting under the teaching on a regular basis, reading your Bible, or going to a Bible study or a life group, whatever the, uh, whatever the setting is, the Word of God is an apt warning system for us. It repeatedly talks about uh, dealing with pride in our own lives. It gives us these measuring sticks to uh, evaluate our own lives and our own hearts to see if there's pride lurking in, in, in our hearts. And the la- and last thing I would say is uh, conviction from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in effect a warning system if we, pay, if we pay attention to it. Oftentimes, again, this is from personal experience, know when we are prideful, Holy Spirit will gently remind us that's prideful or that we need to humble ourselves or that's that's not loving. And so if we, if we are, as believers, pay attention to these warning systems, they can aid us in detecting pride in our own lives. So, I mean, I think one of the things we have to recognize is if we don't have these warning systems in our lives, then we're handicapping ourselves. Amen? Right? If you neglect reading Scripture, then Scripture cannot convict you. If you neglect Christian community, then 
the people around you are not going to act like a warning system. Okay? Or if you pick people that are like you or behave like you, then they probably don't think you're prideful because they do the same thing. All right? And so it's important that we utilize these God-given warning systems in our lives to remind us to look for pride and to root it out. It's awfully quiet in here, so uh, if it's not relevant to you, at least I'm preaching to myself here. So, so kind of look for, look for warning signs of pride. Uh, the second point uh, today or this morning that I want to pick out from this passage is to resist the trappings of this world. Resist the trappings of this world. So first, look for the warning signs. Second, resist the trappings of this world. So believe it or not, and I found this interesting in this passage, pride often reveals itself in predictable patterns in our life. Right, we see this throughout Scripture. Look at, uh, look at verse 16 here. Um, what does the king tell Daniel? He says, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. There's actually these three things reflect or en encapsulate the three things that John reminds us in his epistle um, that are used by the, by the enemy to entice us. So look at the, the, the purple indicates that Daniel would have all of his desires met. Essentially, it's a sign of luxury and comfort. Second, the gold chain, in other words, it's not just a chain, it's just a massive transfer of wealth from the king to Daniel. And the third ruler in the kingdom, remember I told you, Belshazzar was a co-regent, and so the next highest position to him would have been the third ruler. So Daniel would have been given the position of the, uh, of the next highest ruler. If that, if that sounds familiar, or that pattern sounds familiar, is because we see that in 1 John 2.16, where John reminds us, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So Belshazzar tries to entice or bribe, um, bribe Daniel uh, for his interpretation. Daniel himself recognizes that this is not from Daniel, that it is from God, and Daniel has mentioned that multiple times, but uh, Belshazzar tries to entice him. By the way, desire, the ESV uses the word desire, and I think that's a weak translation. Uh, the word is probably, uh, the, uh, the Greek there is epithumia, and epithumia really is more like obsessive desire, or excessive desire, or like craving, think craving, uh, because desire by itself is a good thing. It's God-given, um, and God has given that um, uh, given that to us as a gift. But either way, uh, it turns out that these trappings, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, festers pride in our lives. Uh, these are good things that God has given us, but they can oftentimes be environments that foster pride. Think about the Garden of Eden. What was the three things? We see the three, this three pa these, uh, trifecta appear in, the, in chapter 3 when the serpent approaches Eve. Eve sees that the fruit is good, that it tastes good, and that they would be like God. It's the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as some translations have it. It's the same play, or the same enemy, just different victims, right? We see this in the, gar in the wilderness when Jesus, right before his ministry starts, it's the same three temptations. It's the same three trappings. So desire 
um, when it's not properly placed under God, can start ruling us. Okay. I think one of the uh, problems or one of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that desire that is God-given, we can't allow desire to rule us. It has to be submitted to what God says is good because once it rules us, it will tell us, it will uh, take the place of God in our own lives. And essentially that's where you get addictions or we get pride festering in our lives because our desire becomes, our getting what we want becomes the sole priority in our lives as opposed to serving God and the people around us. I mean, and God created desire, so naturally he knows how best to use it. But because of the fall, we allow desire to take the place of God, and that's one of the consequences of the fall that the early church fathers called the weakness in the will. Um, it's oftentimes, you know, it makes us into animals. You know, if you guys, we don't, have any, we don't have pets at home, but if you have a dog, Lindsay's parents have a lot of dogs, uh, or did, uh, but... Um, anytime we're eating, what do they do? They're just staring at you, right? That's craving, right? That's no, don't blink, don't miss a beat. Make sure you're following every crumb to every last detail, right? That's essentially what desire does to us. It essentially replaces God, our conscience, with itself, and it takes over our lives. Uh, so it's important that we would desire properly and put it in proper place. Otherwise, it, these good things can become co-opted by the enemy and become God things. When our stuff and our jobs, our positions start to become our identity, then we know we're not operating under God. These become false idols in our lives. They replace God and, and become our false gods. When our role as parents become our sole identity, and they're the only ones that define us, then we know we've replaced or made it into an idol. If our political views become intertwined with our identity that we can't separate them, then no, we, we know that it's become an idol. When our jobs and working hard and our stuff start to become part of our identity, then we know the enemy has made a good thing into a God thing. Amen? The question we need to ask ourselves in that case is, have I created or cultivated an environment for pride to flourish in my life? Let me repeat that. Have I created or cultivated an environment for pride to flourish in my life? And if we have, how do we address it? How do we root it out? How do we make sure that we die to this sin of pride in our lives to so make sure that it doesn't get a foothold in our own life? That brings me to the third and kind of last point for today, uh, that we must consistently address pride in our life uh, or consistently root out pride. That's the third point. Consistently root out pride. Now, how do we do that? So, like I mentioned earlier, because of the nature of pride, it often shows up in our life not as pride, right? Uh, for Eve, it showed up as disobedience, right? For, um, um, for Judas, it showed up as uh, greed or betrayal. Um, for us, it may show up as anger or envy or gluttony or uh, lust or addiction, just a few versions of how pride appears in our life. So I think the best way to handle that is we must constant, consistently engage in these spiritual practices that chip away at those sinful tendencies. One thing, and I've mentioned this before, uh, and I come back to it because uh, of how 
it's been used consistently throughout the church, and that is fasting. Like one surefire way that has been used by the church and believers throughout history to address excessive desire is to fast from desire. Fasting gets to the root of our desires and teaches us that we can live even when all of our desires are not met. Shocking, right? Shocking. But fa- that's what fasting gets to. It gets to the root of our desires and teaches us that we can live even when all of our desires are not met because God is in control and we don't have to get our way in everything. And what better way to address pride and obsessive desire and loosen this power than fasting? And so fasting is primarily from food, but it also could be from social media or just media in general or uh, the news or, you know, what are, whatever other area that constantly uh, interrupts your relationship with God. Uh, even our hobbies. Again, good things for periods of time. It's good for us to fast from these things for periods of time to allow ourselves to reconnect with God and to see um, if this, uh, because what this act of self-denial does for us, it may not seem huge, but practiced over time, what it does for us is we begin to recognize what controls us. What controls our behavior? Are we happy when we get what we want? Are we happy when we get to uh, practice all of, uh, when our, uh, you know, party wins or when our team wins or when we get that race? Are the, those the only times we are happy? Because that's fasting from those to tell us uh, what, if those things control us. And I think that will probably lead us to run to Jesus for grace because it will constantly unearth pride in our own life. Another spiritual discipline uh, that has been practiced by believers across uh, history is, um, is to keep the Sabbath, right? I mean, keeping the Sabbath or not having a day of productive work has got to be shocking or is almost unimaginable for some of us. I'm included in that, you know? Like, you know, you work for five days and then you do chores for six days and then you, you know, whatever doesn't get caught between those two days, you make up for it on Sunday or, you know, whatever the Sabbath day is. But when we rest on the Sabbath and trust God with the outcome, we're rooting out self-reliance. We're rooting out the belief that this all depends on me. We're rooting out the pride that takes the place of God in our lives. Essentially, that's why God institutes the Sabbath for the Jewish people. The Sabbath helps us create margin in our lives to spend time with our community, to worship God, and to do life with each other. And so keeping the Sabbath, if, if pride is something that shows up in your life, keeping the Sabbath is one, is, is one, of the, uh, one great way or spiritual discipline to practice. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard because things will come up. Somebody will need something from you on the day you decide to do this. And the last discipline I want to mention is uh, frugality. Now, frugality, if you don't know what that is, you probably have never heard of it before, or if you, um, and so if you're not aware of it, in frugality we abstain from using money or stuff at our disposable in ways that merely gratify our desire for status, comfort, glamour, or luxury. Okay, we abstain from using our money or stuff just for the sake to gratify our desires of status, comfort, glamour, or luxury. So you take a vacation, not because you want to take that vacation, it's because your neighbor decides to take a vacation like that, so you're trying to keep up. Right? So what if there's, again, 
it's hard to detect, um, and, you're, and you, we need to rely on God and the people that know us and trust us and the Holy Spirit to convict us of these things. Because again, it may, um, these are good things that God's blessed us with. So we may not always detect them. By practicing frugality, we consciously decide to curb our luxury consumption because it often has a tendency to distract us from God. Like the more toys you have, the more you have to spend time keeping up with them. It almost fosters pride and envy in our lives. Amen? Again, yeah, very quiet. So, um, as we close today, I think uh, let's, uh, let us, uh, actually one more. And this is not in my notes, but I, th- I was thinking about this when Alyssa made the announcement about um, serving in kids' ministry. Serving is a g- another great way to deal with pride in your life. I know it has for me. And if you feel like, um, you know, I think the way Alyssa framed it was, if you feel led by God, right? If you've not heard from God, just go ahead and sign up, get background checked, and go ahead and serve, and just ask God, God, if you don't want me to serve, just let me know. And just keep serving till he tells. I promise you, Alyssa won't be mad, we won't be mad, and God won't be mad for this time you spend serving. So, it is a great way for us to deal with our own. When we serve people that show up at the door, uh, it's a great way to deal with our pride and comfort and uh, our, our, the way it inconveniences, can inconveniences us. It's a great way to die to pride in our lives. So as we kind of close today, let's reflect on our lives. What lights on our dashboards are going off? Is there pride? What warning signs are going off? Uh, let's not neglect the warning systems I mentioned, whether it's reading the Word of God, sitting under uh, godly teaching, or uh, gathering with uh, fellow believers, um, spending time in prayer. And lastly, even though these spiritual practices sound weird and we won't do it perfectly and there will be a lot of interruptions, but as we attempt to practice the practices of fasting and keeping the Sabbath and frugality and serving, I think we root out any form of pride in our lives. So when the Spirit convicts us, we'll be quick to confess it and repent from it. I mean, Jesus is the perfect example of that, isn't he? Right? He leaves, uh, we read uh, in Philippians, how he gave up the right hand of God, the throne that was in the right hand of God, to come be a human with us, take on human nature, deal with the same temptations, practice the same disciplines, so that he may be obedient to his Father. I think that's the model that Jesus sets up for us, too, as believers. Right? We may not be a king, you know, doing a, um, um, a drunken orgy, but we have our own kingdoms. We run our own lives, and I think submitting those to God and, and rooting out pride, I think is just as relevant to us as it was for Belshazzar. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this morning as we kind of look at Daniel. Uh, I know a lot. As I look at Belshazzar's life and the way um, Daniel reminds him how he had all the opportunity to know what is the right thing to do. He didn't need the interpretation on the wall. That was just God's final judgment. But he had multiple opportunities to deal with the pride in his own life, to humble himself and to worship the one true God. Pray that we as believers, as we listen to this, um, these words and re- reflect on this passage this morning, that we uh, don't neglect the warning systems you've given in our lives, 
that we don't neglect um, the tools you've given us as believers to deal with um, pride in our own life. We pray that everyone that's listening to this word, let, um, let your word go forth, let your word convict, it would convict our hearts. If we've ignored your warnings in the past, we pray that you have mercy on us and you continue to convict us of our sin. I pray that we will have courage as believers to lean into each other and when we see pride present, whether it's in our lives or in the, people, uh, in the lives of the people around us, that we will confess and repent and apologize, that we may love and serve each other well. We know that you're in control, God. We know that even as Daniel interprets the dream, we know that the overall theme is that you're in control and that you love us, that you gave us your only son as a model for us on what it means to live humbly. I pray that you, we keep our eyes fixed on him as we walk our Christian journey. We know that your spirit uh, is with us. It's guiding us and leading us. We ask all this in Jesus' name.